listening to the Touch Em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and on today's episode, we have UFC 286, Edwards versus Usman 3. In the main event of the evening, in the champion's hometown of Greater London, England, at the O2 Arena, he will be defending his newly won undisputed UFC welterweight champion against the man he knocked out in the fifth round via cross-high kick, after he was losing every single round up until that point, aside from the first. Down 3-1 in the championship round, and he pulls off the pure Rocky moment in the welterweight champion, Leon Rocky Edwards, going up against the former UFC welterweight champion, who many people believe to be the pound-for-pound greatest of all time, or one of the pound-for-pound greatest of all time, pound-for-pound greatest welterweights of all time in some people's opinions in the Nigerian nightmare. Former welterweight champion, former ultimate fighter in Kamaru, the Nigerian nightmare, Usman. Usman won the first fight via decision in a dominant performance. He was on his way to dominating to a decision in the second fight until he got hit with the head kick in the miracle moment from Leon Rocky Edwards. What will happen in the third fight? In the trilogy, we have UFC 286, Usman versus Edwards 3. Let's get this started and step into the ring. All right. All right. UFC 286 from the O2 Arena in London, England. Such a good card here, man. I know the pay-per-view, you're going to look at it and you're going to see maybe three fights on there. And then the rest of the main card, you're kind of like, eh. You know, and I understand because... A lot of the times when you look at a main card, you want at least four out of the five fights to be bangers. But it doesn't always happen like that. But the good fights we do have, the high-level fights we do have on this card are extremely intriguing and very, very fan-friendly. I know you're going to say that the main event is not going to be fan-friendly because the first fight was a dominating performance from Usman. You know, he almost got caught in a submission by Edwards in the fight. But other than that, he dominated the fight. The second fight, Leon Edwards is the first person to ever take Kamaru Usman down in, in his career inside the UFC. Gets the mount, takes the back, puts in the body triangle, almost submits him in the first round. But then for the second, third, and the fourth, Usman's wrestling, his pressure, his body work, his punches from inside the clinch range were doing a lot of good work for him. And he was getting a lot of takedowns, controlling Leon, pushing him back. And Leon just couldn't pull the trigger until he found it and pound for pound, headshot, bang. In the fifth round, he lands that cross into the left side high kick or the rear side high kick as Edwards or as Usman tried to slip out of the way of the cross and got hit right on the chin and got knocked out cold. And now he is the new UFC welterweight champion. That fight speaks for itself. Co-main event, lightweight division. Justin the Highlight Gaethje, former interim lightweight champion versus one of the most crisp strikers in MMA, probably the best kickboxer or one of the best kickboxers in the UFC in Rafael Adaman Fiziev coming off of that fifth round knockout win over Rafael Dos Anjos in his last fight, that spinning wheel kick knockout over Brad Riddell. He's 6-1 and one in the UFC going up against Gaethje who's coming off of that title Fight loss to Charles Dobronx Oliveira. Before that, it was a unanimous decision victory at UFC 268 over Iron Michael Chandler. I mean, he's 6-4 and four in the UFC, I believe, is Justin Gaethje. 6-0 and oh in the UFC, or 6-1 and one in the UFC for Fiziev. He had that loss to 
Magomed Mustafayev via that spinning back kick right to the face. It was like a spinning side kick right to the went to. It looked like it was going to go to the body, but it ended up going up top to the head. You have the UFC debut of the undefeated Christian Leroy Duncan, the former Cage Warriors welterweight champion. He's going up against the tough test in his debut and Dusko Todorovic. Um, that's a really solid fight, and that's actually where we're going to start the breakdown on. We've got Marvin Vittori versus Roman Delidze. Some good fights on the prelims with Mohamed Mokayev coming back to action. I mean, we've got a lot of stuff to cover for UFC 286. And I know I still owe you that breakdown of UFC 285. And to be honest, I would include it here. And then we could talk about Jan and Devalishvili. But I feel like we have to do like a news recap. I think that's what I'm going to start doing. So I'm going to do a predictions podcast once a week. And then I'm going to do the like recap podcast. As long as I can like figure it out and time it correctly. If I can do these predictions on Monday, we're getting them out on Monday. Fights are Saturday afternoon. If I can figure out how to, you know, do that and do maybe a Monday predictions, Friday recap, and then we can cover the recaps at the end of the week for the previous weekend's fights, I think that would be a good idea. So that's probably what I'm going to try to do. Monday predictions, Friday's recap. So we're going to try to keep that, see if we can do that and get that figured out. But yeah, I mean, let's, let's kick it off for UFC 286. We're going to be breaking down six fights. We've got three prelims. Three main card fights we're going to be talking about. You know us. We don't cover the whole card. I could do it, but with the amount of detail I go into on each fight, I don't want to have you guys sitting here for two and a half, three hours, because if I went into as much detail as I do on 12, 13, 14 fights, I mean, you guys would probably not want to listen to this podcast, right? It's already long enough, and we cover about as much as we can. So we're going to talk about the first fight up in the prelims in the middleweight division with who we just discussed, the former... Cage Warriors middleweight champion, the undefeated professional mixed martial artist, making his UFC debut in Christian Leroy Duncan, going up against Dosko Todorovic, who I don't believe has a nickname, but I will check that for you right now. Does he have a nickname? Ah, come on. If there's any pauses while I'm trying to pull these web pages up, I have it loaded. It just takes a while. For some reason, the connection on this website is not the greatest. But Dusko Thunder Todorovic, who comes in with a record of 12 victories and three defeats in his professional MMA career, 11 wins by way of finish, one by decision. On his three losses, he's got two wins or two losses by KOTKO and one by decision. And then his one decision loss actually came to Gregory Robocop Rodriguez, which you know, doesn't look too bad. He, he's been pretty good in his career. He actually defeated a man who also defeated Dusko Todorovic and Chidi Ejikawani. And then you look at Christian Leroy Duncan, big prospect coming out of Cage Warriors. Like I said, Cage Warriors middleweight champion, 7-0 in his professional MMA career. I believe he has six finishes out of seven victories. We're going to pull that up real quick. Just got to give it a second to load up because it just does not want to load. It's terrible. Absolutely awful sometimes. I mean it. Let's see. Yeah, so 7-0 and is Christian Leroy Duncan. Five wins by KOTKO, one by submission, and one by decision. So each man has one win by way of decisions, and all the rest of their wins are by finishes. So out of 19 wins... 
you've got 17 finishes between Duncan and Todorovic out of the losses, no losses on the side of the undefeated Christian Leroy Duncan. And then out of the three losses on the side of Todorovic, he's got two losses by KOTKO and one loss via decision. Never been submitted in his MMA career. Man, um, I really like the side of Christian Leroy Duncan here. I did not know him before I broke down this fight. I don't really follow Cage Warriors until they make it into the UFC. So I went and I looked back at some of the tape on Christian Leroy Duncan. And let me tell you, man, this guy is good. And when you're when you've got a striker like uh, Christian Leroy Duncan, who's a traditional style karate taekwondo style, kind of like a Wonder Boy esque striker, very in and out, light on the feet, constantly changing his stances. He'll throw spinning back elbows, follow up with the cross on the rear side as he spins through. He'll feint the takedowns, level changes, throw the flying knee. He likes to slip his head off the center line and roll. He'll disguise his stance changes with the little head movement and the lateral movement and disguise the cha- the stance changes into moving into the kill shots. He's done it with flying knees. He did that against um, Mirian Dimitrov. Actually, that one was a spinning back elbow to punches. And then before that, he when he won the Cage Warriors Middleweight Championship, it was against Jati Milan. That was at Cage Warriors 136. It was a flying knee to punches. He had some issues with his eyes. Did Milan said that he had a contact lens in that kept falling out, but you're not supposed to have contact lenses in during a fight anyway. And he was able to stop the takedowns and the grappling heavy approach of Milan. You know, he got him down a couple times, but he stayed patient. Uh, Milan was able to tie him up, get to the top position up against the cage, almost get into that triangle leg mount like a Khabib Dagestani grappler style. And he was able to stay patient, work his way back up to the feet, just remain calm. And then once the next round started, he came out like a house of fire and was piecing him up, you know, cracking him with big shots, landing a lot of his combinations, stance changes, getting him to walk into shots in Milan, getting Milan to walk into a lot of straights, hooks, uppercuts to flying knees. He's very good with the front kick, whether it's a front snap kick or a teep kick to the body. That's one thing you have to watch out from. Watch out for from Duncan. He's very good at coming up the center channel with the front kicks to the body. He can pair it up with a front kick or a snap kick to the chin. He can also use a axe kick. We saw him land an axe kick or go for an axe kick before he got that knockout against Marion Dimitrov, I believe. It could have been the fight against Milan, but he went for an axe kick. I mean, he'll go for fainting the level change to the spinning elbow, coming back with the hook or the cross on the other side, constantly changing his stance, his front kicks. Um, He'll go with crescent kicks also right up the middle, landing some crescent kicks. So Christian Duncan is very elusive. He's That's the best way to describe him is he's elusive. He's got that swagger, does Duncan. And going up against a guy in Todorovic, who originally was known for his striking on the contender series with big power, decent boxing ability, ability to hurt the opponent on the feet. He's become more of a grappler, and it's because of the chin issues that he's had. You know, like I said, a lot of his losses have come by knockout. But you look at the people that Todorovic has lost to. I mean, out of his three losses, he got knocked out by Chidi Njikawani with an elbow over the top inside the clinch. That was in May of 2022. He beat Maki Patolo via TKO in the first round. He lost a unanimous decision to Gregory Robocop Rodriguez, and then he got knocked out in the first round by Punahele Soriano. So the knockout against Chidi Njikawani and Punahele Soriano both came in the first round, and it was because they were able to defend the grappling, the takedown approach, the, the top-heavy pressure, taking the back. He, Todorovic is known as a grappler. Like I said, eight wins by KO-TKO, but some of those are ground-and-pound TKOs. He likes to get in on your hips. He likes to take you down, look to take the back, flatten you out, really just outwork you and grind you. You look at the win he got over Jordan Wright 
in the second round, he was getting out grappled by Jordan Wright. And we all know about Jordan Wright, one of the lowest level fighters in the UFC. He's not in the UFC anymore, at least he shouldn't be. And he was even getting out grappled by Jordan Wright early in that fight, taken down, you know, reversed position, was held on the bottom against a guy in Duncan who, yeah, he will kind of play it smart early on, but he's going to be coming at Todorovic with big kicks, punches, combinations, stance changes, and big power. Like I said, six out of his seven wins coming by way of finish, five KOs, one submission. Like he's going to be coming at Todorovic and looking to put him out. And I know he's it's his UFC debut. We've seen some undefeated fighters debut in the UFC and not do so well once they get to the big stage. But man, I really like Christian Leroy Duncan in this spot. I really like him a lot. He's just so technical. He, he moves very elusive for a middleweight, constantly in and out, stance changes, angles. I mean, spinning back elbows, spinning back fists to crosses on the return, knees up the middle, front kicks to the head, front kicks to the body, question mark kicks, not question mark kicks, but crescent kicks, axe kicks, you know, looking to step in, you know, pull back. The only thing I don't like, and this goes for both fighters in Todorovic and Duncan, is the fact that they both kind of pull away and use a pull counter style of defense. Their, their high guard isn't really there. They like to pull away from shots and come back on the counter. They think that their reach and their range, they can pull back and then fire the counters off on the return. But it gets them caught at certain points. Duncan is very good, Leroy Duncan. But I have seen him get caught by using that pullback style of defense. Todorovic is the same thing. Like he'll pull back because he's so tall and rangy. He'll pull back, but sometimes he'll get countered off the pull because he thinks he's out of range when he's not. And when the opponent steps in, he kind of gets backtracked and can't pull back far enough and he'll get caught with a big counter. You look at the significant strikes for Todorovic. He actually has a 57% significant strike accuracy, but his defense is at a 47%. Now we don't have the stats for Christian Leroy Duncan, but I just feel like this is a big, big opportunity for Duncan, and he's going to take full advantage of it. Coming out of the UK, you know, fighting in his hometown, you know, he's going to come out here, make his debut, and he's going to make a statement against Todorovic. We've seen the chin issues. We've seen the durability issues. We haven't seen the durability issues from Dun uh, Leroy Duncan. What we have seen is some issues with grapplers, but we've also seen that even if he does get taken down, He's very good at using the overhook, the wizard kick, working his way back up to the feet, staying calm, and then once he works his way back up after you take him down, he comes in with barrages of punches. He can wait in the first round, kind of make the reads, download the data, and then come at you like a house of fire in that second round and really start to close you in, use that lateral movement, use those in and out styles of footwork, constantly changing his stances, have you running in to flying knees, front kicks, elbows, spinning elbows to the to the crosses like we talked about, spinning elbows to the straight punches, knees up the middle, uppercuts, you know, strikes in the clinch. I don't think he's going to want to play around in the clinch with Todorovic, but we have seen Todorovic get knocked out in the clinch by Chidienja Kawani with an elbow over the top. I think Christian Leroy Duncan puts him away. I know a lot of people think it's the first round. I could definitely see him catching him, putting it on the chin of Todorovic and taking him out in round one. We've seen him get finished twice in round one inside the UFC. Um, I'm going to go with a second round TKO though. I think he does have some grappling success early, but Todorovic, um, can get him down, work the top position, but Duncan's able to survive. He's able to use good defense, work his way back up to the feet, use the cage to stand up with the over under position, circle back to the middle of the cage. Maybe he, you know, takes off a good portion of the first round. He might even drop the first round, 
but eventually Duncan's going to find that range. He's going to come in with those straight punches, have Todorovic overcommitting on his defense, and he's going to catch him with a big spinning back elbow and knock him out. So my pick is Christian Leroy Duncan to defeat Dusko Todorovic in his UFC debut in his hometown of London, England, via second round spinning elbow knockout. I actually love Christian Duncan, Christian Leroy Duncan in this spot for a betting perspective. I'm going to pull it up right now if I can grab the DraftKings odds for you and I will tell you how to play it. Obviously, I don't believe that the, what's it called, uh, prop bets are out yet. Um, when the prop bets come out, I love Christian Duncan inside the distance or Christian Leroy Duncan via a TKO. He opened up at like a minus 155, minus 160. He's been bet up all the way to a minus 195. I love Christian Leroy Duncan on the money line. He's, I just think he's 100% going to get Dusko out of there. Even if the durability of Dusko does hold up, which I don't expect it to, I like him on the money line at a minus 195. So when it comes to a betting perspective, it's Christian Duncan on the money line at minus 195 or Christian Leroy Duncan by KOTKO or DQ whenever the props come out because I believe he will get the finish against Dusko Todorovic in his UFC debut. I like this Christian Leroy Duncan, Cage Warriors middleweight champion, undefeated in pro MMA. I think he's going to have some really good success in that middleweight division, and I think this is where we started off. So Christian Leroy Duncan to defeat Dusko Todorovic via second-round spinning elbow knockout. All right, and up next, we move to a battle in the flyweight division with highly touted and undefeated flyweight prospect going for another win inside the UFC in Muhammad the Punisher Mokayev, who comes in with a record of eight victories and no defeats, going up against a contender series alum. Sorry, apparently I can't speak. In Jafel Filo, coming back with an unbelievable record of 14 victories and two defeats, a combined record of 24 wins with only two losses. It's going to be a good fight, man. Mohamed Mokayev versus Jafel Filo is a lot tougher of a fight for Mokayev than people are going to think that it is. And this is what I mean. Like, Mohamed Mokayev and Jafel Filo, right? Like, everybody going into Mohamed Mokayev's UFC debut after that win over Cody Durden with that flying knee in the first round to that guillotine where he locked it up with the 10-finger guillotine, kind of gable gripped it and got him out of there when it looked like he was going to get out. And then he goes, beats Charles Johnson by decision, constant suplexes, takedowns, top control, ground and pound from the top. I mean, just overall overwhelming him with the takedowns. I think he got 13, 14 takedowns in that fight. Then he goes in and fights Malcolm Gordon, who also fights on this card, I believe earlier in the night. If I'm wrong, let me see. Does he fight on this card? Yeah, Malcolm Gordon, he fights Jake Hadley on the early prelims. You know, going up against Malcolm Gordon, you know, Gordon was able to have some success in the fight against Mokayev. Early, it looked like Mokayev was going to take him down and submit him, looked to grab a guillotine up close to the cage, almost got him out of there, but he was able to defend it. And then the longer the fight went, I mean, the striking on the feet was okay for Mokayev. He likes to land that check left hook and use that left hook as he's backing up to kind of get that angle off to the lead left side. He'll kind of back up and then get that angle with the left hook and allow the opponent to rush forward and them not to be there. But the one thing I do notice about Mokayev when it comes to a defensive perspective with his striking, maybe I'm talking a little too fast for this one. 
Um, he likes to back up in a straight line. If you rush him with three, four, five punches, a kick on the end, if you put your combinations together and look to land on Muhammad Mukhayev, he backs up in a straight line. And that's when he can get caught. And going up against a guy who's as technical and as sharp with his kickboxing as a Jafel Filo, I wouldn't be surprised if Filo chins him here. I really wouldn't. Like, I know Mokayev is good. He hasn't really gone through a lot of adversity aside from that little brink of adversity he had to go through against Malcolm Gordon. You know, dominating early. He gets taken down or gets reversed by Jared Gordon. Or Malcolm Gordon, I'm sorry. I'm thinking Jared Gordon because he just fought last weekend. Gets reversed by Malcolm Gordon, you know, even gives his back up. Gordon almost gets the rear naked choke at the end of the second round. I believe it was the second round. Almost gets the rear naked choke, reverses position, takes the back, gets the hooks in, locks up that rear naked choke, and the time expires. Now, I believe Mokayev didn't really fight it because he knew that the round was already almost over, so he just let it go, and he knew he wasn't going to tap to it, so there's that you have to look at. But even then, after that, in the third round, where Mokayev did secure that submission, at the end of the third round, you know, in that round two, Gordon was able to reverse position. He was able to get on top of Mokayev. He was able to take the back. He was able to have some good success from the top position against a guy who's known as not only a highly touted prospect, but one of the most highly touted grapplers coming into the UFC in Mokayev with the takedowns, with the suplexes, with the control up against the cage, the Dagestani, Dagestani handcuff you know, the control from the half guard, working to the full mount, taking the back, always hunting for submissions, whether it's a guillotine, you know, a darts choke, an anaconda choke, trying to lock up a rear naked choke, and also is his ability to just kind of say F it and go for striking on the feet. He's a little bit reckless as Mokaya, but he did score the finish against Malcolm Gordon with that third round armbar where the time was about to expire. Gordon, you know, tried to explode out of a position. And Mokayev was able to lock up that armbar and get the finish where it wasn't the most impressive performance from Mokayev, but he was still able to get the submission finish. I was very high on Mokayev coming into the UFC. I even posted about it to bet on him in his UFC debut. He wasn't that big of a favorite. I think he was like minus 190, minus 200. Going into this fight, Mokayev's like a minus 800. So... You know, you look at the, the the hype getting to some of the people on the betting lines, the bookies really loving certain people because they know that the bets are going to come in. It's another pro- case of that here with Mokayev going up against Philo because I'm going to pull it up real quick for you. Let me see. I'll pull it up. UFC. Let's see. So looking at the Mokayev versus Filo fight, Mokayev's a minus 800 favorite to a plus 575 underdog on Jafel Filo. The over two and a half rounds is at plus 145. The under two and a half is at minus 180. I don't like this fight. Before I make my prediction, I don't like this fight from a betting perspective on any aspect of the fight at all. I hate it. I don't like it. If I'm going to tell you to bet, I say take a shot on the underdog in Filo. Now, let's talk a little bit about Jafel Filo. Filo came coming off the Contender Series. I didn't know much about him before that. But 14-2 and as a professional mixed martial artist. We'll go in and we will check his, you know, finishes and decisions in his career. Jafel Cavalcante Filo, kind of like Jay-Z Cavalcante. You remember him from Strike Force? He doesn't get talked about much anymore. But one of the OGs of uh, MMA coming up in Strike Force. Jafel, the pastor, Philo, he's 14-2. and two. He's got 13 wins by way of finish. Eight submissions to his name. 
I believe he's a Brazilian, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. He fights out of Novo Uniao with Jose Aldo out in Brazil under Andre Pedineris. Like the guy's training under heavy, 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 not heavy, but under very talented coaches, very talented training partners. And going into this fight, I mean, eight wins by submission, five wins by KOTKO. He's only been submitted once, went to decision once. So only finished once in his career, but 13 finishes out of 14 wins, mostly coming by way of the submissions. Here's why I say that there's a potential to take the underdog in Cavalcante. He's a more technical striker and a sharper striker than Mohamed Mokayev on the feet. Mokayev is good. He does have good angles. He does have power. We've seen it in the flying knees. We've seen it in the straight punches, the hooks. The check hook is probably his best punch, but he's not as good backing up. He's not as good backing up. He has okay counters, but you back him up in a straight line, you can catch him. And the one place that Jafel Filo was able to catch his opponent on the contender series in Robert Echeverria, who was very highly regarded going into that fight that was on week nine of the 2022 contender series in September, caught him in the third round. I believe he was able to catch him with a left hook right on the chin, across left hook, spun the chin around of, of his opponent in Echeverria and knocked him out cold in a fight where it was close, but you know, he was getting taken down. He was getting a little bit outstruck. He was getting low kicked when he was laying on his back, trying to pull Echeverria into the grappling game. And you know, if you play that game against Mokayev, you're going to lose. I believe if Jafel Filo and Mokayev wrestle and it goes to the grappling that Mokayev will be able to outwork Cavalcante Filo, Javel Cavalcante Filio from the top position because he's not going to give him the position to lock up his submissions. But we saw him have some issues against Malcolm Gordon in that fight, giving up his back, almost getting choked, getting reversed, getting the top position taken from him, you know, and kind of not exploding back up to his feet and just surrendering the positions for a little bit at the time. If Jafel Filo gets in those same positions and Mokayev isn't eager to work back up to his feet, then I could see Filo out grappling Mokayev from a jiu-jitsu perspective. But from a wrestling perspective and a top pressure perspective, Muhammad Mokayev is the better grappler or the better wrestler. But the better overall grappler and jiu-jitsu artist, I believe, is Jafel Filo. And the better striker? I think Filo has better striking, man. From what I've seen on the Contender Series, he's got a good straight right hand, a good left hook, pairs it up, one, two, three, right low kick. Cross hook, right low kick. The hook he landed on the contender series to knock out Echeverria. Like, the guy is a very well-rounded fighter. And even though he's got eight wins by way of submission and five by KO, TKO, I could see him catching Makayev on the chin. I could see him out scrambling Makayev and getting to a position where he can lock up a submission. But when it comes to a prediction, I am going to side with Mokayev. I just think Mokayev's overall game, um, even though I don't think it's better technically, I think he's a little bit more eager to get into the positions that he wants to get into. So he'll be able to get those takedowns. He'll be able to control from the top position. I don't believe he'll be able to submit Philo. I don't think he'll be able to knock him out, but I could see maybe he gets caught with a big shot or Mokaya catches him on a counter. But Philo's the much better striker from a technical perspective on the feet, in my opinion. His combinations, his straight punches, his, his speed on his punches, his ability to punctuate the combinations with the hands with the low kicks I think he's a much better technical kickboxer than Mokayev and if Mokayev backs straight up like we've seen him do before and not angle off when he gets close to the cage I could see Filo cutting him off getting into an exchange and shinning Muhammad Mokayev and knocking him out when it comes to a betting perspective I think Muhammad Mokayev wins so I'm gonna go with Muhammad the Punisher Mokayev to win via a 
29-28 unanimous decision. I think he just outgrapples him, but I don't think he finds a finish. But from a betting perspective, man, I really think the only way you're going to play it, and don't parlay this, is to play the underdog. Take a shot on Jafel Filo. I'm not picking him to win, so I guess you could say I'm contradicting myself, but I don't see any upside on Makayev by a um, by a money line bet at minus 800. I could see it going to decision. I mean, he almost went to decision with Malcolm Gordon, but he was able to pull off the finish right at the end of the third round. But I had the under two and a half rounds or under one and a half rounds in that fight, and I ended up losing the bet. So if I lose a bet on a guy going into his next fight, I'm not going to be eager to bet him again unless I think it's a very favorable stylistic matchup. Jafel Filo is not a favorable stylistic matchup for Muhammad Mokayev. It's a very tough fight. This is the toughest fight of his UFC career. And even though Filo hasn't had any fights in the UFC, training under Nova Unyao, you know, coming off the contender series with that phenomenal win where he was able to keep the power and the technique in the third round and get the knockout, even though he was down on the scorecards. I think Filo can pull it off here. He's very live. He's very live. So from a betting perspective, I think the only way to bet it is Jafel Filo on the money line at a plus 575, but I wouldn't parlay it. I would just play that as a little bit of a side bet just in case the underdog pulls it off because I definitely think he can't. But a pick for me is going to be Muhammad Mokayev to improve to 9-0 as a professional mixed martial artist via 29-28 unanimous decision. I think the grappling, the top pressure, and the control up against the cage will be able to stifle the jiu-jitsu of Filo on the floor, and um, you'll see Mokayev's hand get raised, but I don't see him getting a finish. So Muhammad Mokayev to defeat Jafel the Pasture Filo via 29-28 unanimous decision. All right, up next is a fight in the UFC's lightweight division with the other Christian Duncan fighting on this card. Chris Duncan coming into this fight with a record of nine victories and one defeat in the lightweight division, going up against a UFC veteran at this point. Um, some early success, kind of back and forth, hot and cold in his UFC career, fighting out of Team Killcliffe under Coach Henry Hoof and Omar Venezuelan fighter Morales. I believe Chris Duncan is Christian the or Chris the Problem Duncan. I'm actually going to pull that up real quick. So give me one second. Here we go, Chris Duncan. Let's see. Is it going to load for me? Man, I really got to use. I'm going to use like Tapology or something over SureDog. Like I like the website. It never had this much problems for me until recently. But man, its connection is just trash. It's trash. Love you, SureDog. But you just got to fix the connection on this damn website. Let's see, yeah, Christian the, or Chris the Problem Duncan. So Chris the Problem Duncan going up against Omar, Venezuelan fighter Morales. Duncan coming in with a record of nine victories and one loss, eight wins by way of finish, seven TKO KOs or KO TKOs and one submission, one win by decision and one loss by knockout. His loss came back at the uh, on the Dana White Contender Series over Vicheslav Borschev in October of 2021. He got knocked out in the first time of the Contender Series via second-round knockout. I think it was a left hook as he was circling up against the cage. Borshev caught him on the exit and knocked him out. So loses to Borshev, comes back, wins a decision against Jonathan Carlos at UFL 8, and then comes in and knocks out Charlie Campbell in his second bout on the Contender Series in a wild 
back and forth fight where Charlie Campbell was piecing up Chris Duncan. Uppercut, uppercut, uppercut. A left jab. It was kind of like a left hook and a jab together. Stung him coming in. The uppercuts, the uppercuts, the uppercuts. I mean, rocked all over the place, falling all over the place. Duncan finds a way to get an angle on the opposite stance opponent and fires a straight left right down the center. I believe it was a straight left. Boom! Catches Campbell on the chin with his hands down and knocks him out after he almost got knocked out. Dana White's jumping off his chair going crazy. It's it's one of the craziest comebacks in the Contender Series or in the history of the Contender Series. He won that fight in the first round at a minute and 43 seconds in. Prior to that, a TKO in the second round over Lamique Furtado at Bellator 247. TKO in the second round at Bellator 240 over Mateus Piscores. Prior to that, a TKO in the first round over Leandro Souza. Prior to that, a TKO in the first round over Sam Slater at Bellator 217. A TKO in the first round over Niall Smith. I mean, a lot of first and second round finishes, man. Duncan is a good grappler. He has decent takedowns, decent top control. Fights out of Scotland, um, but he's mainly known as a striker. And his striking is very technical. The one thing I will give him an advantage with in this fight over Omar Morales is going to be the volume. When you look at the Venezuelan fighter in Omar Morales, he's 11-3 and as a professional mixed martial artist. But he's coming off one loss by KOTKO, one loss by submission, one loss by decision. The one loss by decision was to Giga Chikadze, which isn't a terrible loss. I mean, he's one of the most highly touted prospects in the featherweight division inside the UFC, at least until he suffered that loss to Kelvin Cater. And then he's coming off of a knockout in the second round to Euros Medic at UFC Fight Night 206, home versus Vieira. Um, that was a fight where I believe I did back Omar Morales to defeat Medic. I thought he was the more technical striker, but the speed and technique of Medic was just way too much for Morales, he tried to use his wrestling, tried to use his grappling, but on the feet, it was just too crisp, too clean, too fast. The power and speed of Medich was too much. He catches him up against the cage with a left hook after he stunned him earlier, and he knocks him out. It wasn't like a knockout cold, but he basically knocked him out on the feet, and then he fell down, and the ref jumped in. Prior to that, he had a unanimous decision win over Shane Young at UFC 260, and then that this, uh, unanimous decision loss to Giga Chikadze at UFC Fight Night 179, he got a unanimous decision win over Gabriel Benitez at UFC Fight Night 171. Uh, unanimous decision win over Dong Yung Ma at UFC Fight Night Edgar versus the Korean Zombie. And then he got that win on the Contender Series over Harvey Park with a TKO or a leg kick TKO and then punches to follow up. That was in the second round. So coming into the UFC, I mean, if you count the Contender Series fight, he was 3-0. Coming into the UFC, unanimous decision win over Dong Yung Ma. Unanimous decision win over Gabriel Mowgli Benitez. TKO on the contender series. Loses to Giga Chikadze. Really tough fight in Giga Chikadze's debut. I mean, really, really tough fight for Omar Morales there. Just way better of a striker was Giga Chikadze. And then Shane Young wins via unanimous decision. You know, Young just really hasn't been able to pick it up in the UFC, man. Sucks because I feel like he is good technically and he has the tools to be successful but he just can't seem to put it together coming out of city kickboxing. Uh, lost to Jonathan Pierce via a rear naked choke submission and then TKO'd in his last fight against Eros Medic in the second round. So coming off two back-to-back -back losses, uh, oh, one and three in his last four, but two finishes in his last two fights. One submission to Jonathan Pierce and one knockout to Eros Medic. And the knockout to, against Eros Medic was in May of 2022, so almost a full year that Morales took off after the last fight, but 
man, I think this is a very tough fight to call. This is not easy to break down. This is not an easy fight to predict. But the one thing I will say is that I believe that Christian or Chris Duncan, the problem Duncan, I should say, has a lot more volume and a lot better of a pace for a 15-minute fight than uh, Omar Morales. Like, Omar Morales is good technically, really good power in his kicks, kicks to the body, kicks up top to the head. He's got good stance-changing combinations, the straight right hand, the one-two, pulled back two. Um, he landed a one-two on the contender series, came back with another one-two, knocked out his opponent. Um, he's got good finishing ability. His striking is good. His straight punches are better. Um, but the volume of Chris Duncan, I think, is going to give a lot of problems to Omar Morales, who's more of a pick, a poke and pick, a poke and prod style of fighter. Like, he's going to look to find the openings and counter you. He's a big counter striker. And we saw Duncan get countered on the contender series against Campbell, you know, countered stepping in with a jab, countered on the level change with the uppercuts. The one thing about Duncan is he's got heart, you know, and Omar Morales has heart too. I'm not going to sit here and say that either fighter is going to be able to outwill the other because I can't necessarily make a read on either fighter right now to say like this guy's for sure going to be able to outwork overcommit not overcommit but outwork and just outpace and have more heart than the other fighter because I've seen Omar Morales come back from adversity I've seen him get hurt and try to come back to get the victory he's not going to quit on himself unless you take him out and even when he's taking a beating he's still going to try to get the win but I think the biggest problem in this fight is the problem Chris Duncan, I think his boxing and his volume is a big issue. Now, I know you're going to look at the defense issues from Duncan and say that the one loss he has in his UFC career did come by way of knockout. And not only that, but the fact that he got hurt a ton on his contender series fight. The second contender series fight after losing the first fight to Vyacheslav Borshev via knockout. He has had his chin rocked. He has been rocked before, but he showed the adversity to come back from it and be able to go into that firefight. Now, I think the more technical striker when it comes to the kickboxing is going to be Omar Morales. Chaining the punches and kicks together, landing the body kicks, landing the low kicks, coming back on counters. Omar Morales is going to be more technical. But the boxing, I think the boxing of Chris Duncan is going to give Omar Morales a lot of trouble. I think his straight punches, his hooks, the one, two, three, the cross hook, the double jab, left hook, right hand, switching stances, right hook, straight left, that's going to give... Omar Morales a lot of trouble because Duncan isn't a guy who's going to slow down. He's going to be on the pace. He's going to be on the pressure. He's going to be pulling the counters out of Omar Morales. And the longer the fight goes, the midpoint of the second round into the third round, I think the volume and pace of Chris Duncan is going to give Omar Morales a lot of trouble because everything that Omar Morales throws is big power. His kicks, full power. His jabs, full power. His straight punches, full power. Everything that Morales throws is full power, which is going to tax your gas tank, but it's also going to leave you open to the volume striking of your opponent if they can get out of the way of those big power shots and get out of the way of the counters of that you throw and then be able to come back and counter your counter. So I think the boxing ability of Duncan is going to be a big problem for Morales in this one. I think the combinations on the feet are going to just be able to overwhelm Morales the longer the fight goes. Um, if you look at the stats, you've got uh, 5'10 to 5'11, so that doesn't make much of a difference. You've got a one and a half inch reach advantage for Morales, and Morales is going to have to use that with the kicking range, going to have to use that with the counter straight punches, with the straight rights, the straight lefts, coming back against the looping shots of Chris Duncan, whether it's the right or the left hooks or the uppercuts, coming back on the counter with the straight punches from Southpaw or Orthodox. When you look at the significant strikes, Duncan lands 7.1 significant strikes per minute to 3.47 
for Omar Morales. So he's doubling up Morales, basically. And that's what I mean when I say the volume of Duncan is going to give Morales a lot of trouble. He actually doubles him up and also has a higher significant strike accuracy rate at a 44% significant strike accuracy rate for Duncan to a 38% significant strike accuracy rate for Omar Morales. But he takes a lot more punches. He's not that good defensively, but he's very good offensively. Takes almost eight punches a minute, 7.94 strikes absorbed per minute to 3.12 for Omar Morales. So although Duncan is going to double up the strikes landed per minute and be higher with the significant strike accuracy rate, he also takes double the amount and actually almost triple the amount, well, a little over double, not triple, the amount that Omar Morales takes on the feet. So he's going to be more hittable. He's going to be there to get hit with the counters, but I think he's going to be able to wilt and overall just push Omar Morales later in this fight, past the 12-and-a-half-minute mark, you know, past the 10-minute mark. He's going to be able to push him in the late second part, or the second half of the second round and into the third round. His defense, like I said, not the best. 41% striking defense to a 61% defense for Omar Morales. You look at the grappling, he lands almost eight strikes per minute, but he also gets four takedowns per 15-minute fight. 0.54 takedowns for Omar Morales, where he only gets the takedowns, really, if he's countering your forward pressure. And that could work against Duncan, but I think we're going to see a striking fight. And if somebody is going to resort to the grappling and the wrestling, it's going to be Chris Duncan. But he also only has a 40% takedown accuracy rate, but he's active. The volume, the takedown attempts. He's going to be able to push Omar Morales into deep waters. We've seen him get countered. We've seen him get clipped before. But I'm going to side with the UFC newcomer in the problem, Chris Duncan, to be able to get Omar Morales out of there. I think his volume, his pace, his pressure going into the second half of the second round, going into the third round, he's going to be able to eventually just find a big shot on a guy who's been finished in his last two fights and get him out of there. So I'm going to side with the underdog. Uh, I believe he's an underdog, a slight underdog in this fight. The money line's basically, you know, even money at this point. I'll pull it up real quick. Uh, Chris Duncan is a, let's see. Where is it at? A plus 105 underdog to a minus 125 for Omar Morales. I'm going to side with the plus 105 dog and Chris Duncan to get the win via third round TKO. I think his volume, his pace, his pressure, he's going to get countered. He might get hurt himself because we've seen some chin issues from Duncan, but I like the problem here. So I'm going to side with the plus 105 underdog and Chris, the problem, Duncan to win via a third round TKO over Omar Morales. When it comes to a betting perspective, I don't like this fight at all. Um, if I'm going to tell you to play any side, based on the durability issues of Morales lately, um, I would say probably take the dog at plus 105 in Chris Duncan, but I don't love it, and I think there's much better spots on the card. Um, even though we're not breaking the fight down, I really like Lerone Murphy at like a minus 140, minus 130. Let's see what he's at right now. Um, Lerone Murphy's a minus 170. He was all the way down at like a minus 140. So money has been coming in on Lerone Murphy. I like Lerone Murphy a lot more than I like the underdog and Chris Duncan here. I know the fights aren't the same, but if we're talking about a betting perspective, I say stay away from Duncan and Morales. Don't play the over-unders. Don't take a side. Stay away from it because I think the fight could go either way. But I'm going to side with the durability, the volume, or the volume and the pace and pressure of Chris Duncan against Omar Morales. So. Omar Morales, or I'm sorry, Chris Duncan to win via a third round TKO over Omar, the Venezuelan fighter Morales. Betting perspective, stay away from it on all sides. And if you're going to want to take a fight similar to this place on the card, 
I would just say play Lerone Murphy, even though it's not this fight. Play Lerone Murphy at minus 170. I think that's a much better play. All right, and now we move to the main card, and the main card opener in a fantastic and very interesting fight. I would say one of the most interesting fights on the entire card in the middleweight division between the number four ranked former middleweight title challenger in Marvin, the Italian dream Vittori coming into the fight with a record of 18 victories, six defeats, and one no contest going up against the number nine ranked streaking contender with a bunch of finishes to his name inside the UFC in Roman, the Caucasian Dolidze, who comes back with a record of 12 victories with one lone defeat. I think that this fight is pretty cookie cutter when it comes to breaking it down analytically. But the one thing we've learned from Roman Delidze is that as much as you break his fights down, you never really know how the fight's going to go. Because Delidze is a plus 225 underdog in this fight, and he's been an underdog in every single one of his UFC fights, I believe. I'm pretty sure every single one of his UFC fights, he's been an underdog. And he's won every single one of them, except for a decision loss to Trevin Giles back early in his UFC career. He lost that fight via decision, really just slowed down, no volume, got taken down, you know, stuff like that. But overall, he lost that fight. But lately in his UFC career, I think he might have five wins in a row. Four wins, I was close. So he lost a unanimous decision to Trevin Giles. He came back with a unanimous decision win over Leonardo Starpoli. And then he's got three finishes in his last three fights. He's got a TKO in the first round via a knee inside the clinch that broke the face of Kyle Dawkins, who I was very high on going into this fight. I thought there was no way that Dawkins was going to lose that. And he was a pretty big underdog or pretty big favorite, I think, like minus 220, minus 230 going in against Roman Delizze, Delizze shuts him down, gets him up against the cage, lands a big knee inside the clinch, drops him, and puts him puts him away a minute and 13 seconds into the fight. Against Phil Hawes, I went against Roman Delizze as well. Uh, Phil Hawes comes in, looks to use the wrestling and grappling, gets caught in a leg lock position as Roman Delizze rolls into it, basically has his knee and ankle like perpendicular, pushes down with his hips, pulls up on it, blows the knee out, of Phil Hawes, he can't stand up correctly, injures him in that leg lock, which was legal, and then drops him with a jab, I believe, or like a left hook, something weird, um, knocks him off balance, rushes him, gets him up against the cage, boom, boom, left hook, right hook, left hook, knocks him out, knocks him out, just three, four punches, big power punches on the chin of Phil Hawes, knocks him out cold. Now I finally start to get on the Roman Delidze train, right? I'm finally starting to be like, you know, I, I've Gone against this guy twice. I'm going to pick him in this fight against Jack Hermanson. Going against Hermanson, he was like a plus 190 underdog. Plus 175, plus 190. I side with Roman Delidze. I also side with Delidze in that fight via KOTKO. I believe those were like plus 400 odds. And Delidze gets the TKO in the second round, but he didn't get the TKO like you think. He was able to put Jack Hermanson into a, a reverse triangle. Then as he defended the reverse triangle, Delidze rolled into the Ashigurami leg lock game, puts him in a heel hook of some sort. Then from there, Roman Delidze or Jack Hermanson tries to roll out of it, but Hermanson gets caught in a calf slicer position. Delidze locks up his back, grabs the, the seatbelt kind of, grabs like a seatbelt on the far side of his back, rolls him to his stomach, and then is able to get him in the calf slicer position with a figure four on his own legs and knock him out with a TKO 
basically a ground and pound TKO belly down from the calf slicer position. One of the most creative finishes we've seen in the UFC and one of the most creative finishes, I think it was the best finish of the year or most creative finish of the year for Roman Delizze over Jack Hermanson. Second round TKO. Um, that was a fight where he was definitely losing on the feet, but once they got into those grappling exchanges, he was able to scissor sweep Jack Hermanson into the full mount early. And then, I mean, he was able to out grapple him. He's very good from the bottom and he's also active off of his back and going up against a guy in Marvin Vittori who likes to, you know, hang out on the feet and strike. That's his, that's his wheelhouse. He likes to play on the feet. He likes to strike really good boxing from Vittori. He has good kicks as well. Good volume striking, like he can really put the pace and pressure on you, and then he'll use that striking to get you to guard up and then use his wrestling. Good takedowns, good control from the back, good positioning from the top position. You know, the Italian dream, Marvin Vittori, coming off that big win over Paulo Costa, I believe. Or did he, was his last fight the loss to Whitaker? Okay, yeah. His last fight was actually the loss to Robert Whitaker via unanimous decision. Just got outstruck. Um, the the striking of Robert Whitaker was just way too much. The takedown defense was on point. He wasn't able to close the distance. Marvin Vittori was basically a deer in headlights. I picked Robert Whitaker to win that fight via decision. That was the night where I also picked. Um, that's not where I picked Roman Delizze to win. That's where I picked Gon over Tuivasa. I had a big night. That was the first big night I had from a betting perspective on UFC fights was at UFC Paris. But he was able to, you know, he just got picked apart by Robert Whitaker. Push comes to shove, he got picked apart. And going into this fight, you know, Marvin Vittori is going to have the striking advantage. He's going to have the volume striking. He's going to be the more technical guy. Delidze doesn't have anything on the feet except for power. He's not a volume striker. His technique isn't that good. He kind of wings his punches. He has okay straight punches, good hooks when he's in close. But striking on the feet 100% goes to Marvin Vittori. If I'm breaking it down from a percentage perspective, I would say maybe 87% to... 13% for striking success on the feet in this fight. I think 87% of the time to 90% of the time, Marvin Vittori is going to be the more technical striker. He's going to have more volume. He's going to be able to hit Roman Delizze when Roman Delizze can't hit him. But a power side, I would say it's 80% power on the side of Delizze. It's a 20% power on the side of Vittori. Vittori has dropped fighters before. He dropped Jack Hermanson on the feet in his fight. Um, wasn't able to finish him though. And then Delizze was able to finish Jack Hermanson. So even though it was from an awkward position, it was a position where you're not going to be able to get out of it. I know that Vittori's a good grappler. Hermanson's a great grappler as well. But if he gets put in that calf slicer position and Delizze's on top of him raining bombs like he was against Hermanson, I think it's very highly unlikely that we would wind up in that same position in this fight again. But if it does, Delizze's going to TKO Marvin Vittori 100%. Because you just can't really get out of that position. It's such a difficult position to get out of. Now, there's always a escape for every, you know, reaction. There's an equal, and for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Like, there's always a get up or a defense at some point. I just don't think people have learned it yet. But we go into the fight 18 6 and 1 for Marvin Vittori, 12 and 1 for Roman Delidze, 6 feet for Vittori, 6 2 for Delidze. So a two inch height advantage for Roman Delidze. Uh, a two-inch reach advantage as well, 76-inch reach for Roman Delizze, 274-inch reach for Marvin Vittori. Leg reach identical at 41 inches. Win percentages, 58% of the wins come by way of KOTKO for Delizze, 25% by submission, and 17% by decision. So we're looking at an 83% finish rate for Roman Delizze. When you look at Marvin Vittori, 
11% of the wins by KOTKO, 50% by submission, 39% via decision. So a 61% finish rate for Vittori to an 83% finish rate for Roman Delidze. Average fight time is going to be a lot higher on the side of Vittori. He not only has he gone to decision more, but he's also had more championship five-round fight experience with the belt or without it. 16 minutes and 27 seconds of fight time for Marvin Vittori to 9 minutes and 6 seconds for Roman Delidze. So under half the amount of time, after under half the amount of average fight time for Delidze compared to Marvin Vittori. Experience on the side of Vittori. Um, High-level opponents on the side of Vittori. I mean, fighting the likes of Robert Whitaker, Paulo Costa, Israel Adesanya twice. You know, Jack Hermanson. But... Roman Delidze is on his way up, fights Kyle Dawkins, fights Phil Hawes, just TKO's Jack Hermanson. This is his big, true test. Hermanson was a true test. He almost didn't get out of it, but he found a way to win. This is his big test. The number five ranked fighter in the division. I think he's number five or number four. Number four ranked Marvin Vittori. This is his big test, you know, and to be honest, unless Roman Delidze finds a finish, he's going to get beat. Delidze is going to get outstruck. He's going to get outstruck by volume by a large margin. I mean, volume and numbers-wise, Vittori's going to have that by a mile. You look at the significant strikes. 2.62 landed per minute for Roman Delidze to 4.2 for Vittori. Even though that's only like a a 1.5 strike advantage for Vittori, two strikes landed more per minute. It's a lot more than that, I feel like, in this fight. And you're going to see it play out on the feet. 44% significant strike accuracy rate for Vittori to 47%. Significant strike accuracy rate for Roman Delidze. However, Delidze is so economical with his strikes that he throws. Um, he's slow. He's not that good technically with his strikes, but he's not terrible. Like, I'm not saying he can't strike at all, but he's got knockout power. And if he lands on Vittori's chin, he can hurt him. But Vittori's been hit with huge head kicks from Paulo Costa. Lynn got took every shot from Israel Adesanya. I mean, took big punches and head kicks from Robert Whitaker. I don't think that. Delidze is going to be able to TKO Marvin Vittori unless he gets him in that grappling heavy position and the grappling advantageous position, such as a calf slicer takes the back and flattens out Vittori, calf slicer to ground and pound. Like that's where Delidze is going to get a TKO, but he is live for a submission finish. Strikes absorbed per minute, Vittori takes 3.58 to 2.06 for Roman Delidze. Defense pretty neck and neck, uh, 59% defense with the striking for Marvin Vittori to 57% striking defense for Roman Delidze. Even though the numbers are close in terms of striking defense, striking accuracy, Vittori outlands Delidze by a mile. Like I already said, he is so much better with the volume, so much better at putting his strikes together. Um, it, it's it's not going to be close in terms of volume and numbers. That's going to be all on the side of Vittori. Uh, Roman Delidze has big power. He has big shots, but he looks for those power shots and kind of holds off until he can find an avenue to land that big power that he has or land a big shot on the feet that can hurt you and lead to the grappling. Now, the grappling is where it's going to get interesting. So 1.89 takedowns per 15-minute fight for Vittori to 2.12 for Delidze. Uh, Delidze is actually not only more active with his takedowns by a small margin, but actually has more accurate takedowns. A 52% takedown accuracy for Roman Delidze to 44% takedown accuracy for the Italian dream, Marvin Vittori. Takedown defense heavy on the side of Vittori here. 74% takedown defense rate from Vittori to 33% takedown defense rate from Delidze. But what you have to take into consideration when you look at that takedown defense number is that I know that Delidze doesn't defend takedowns, but it's because he's 
comfortable being on his back. And a lot of the times he will allow the opponent to take him down so he can land elbows from the guard, so he can go for those scissor sweeps from the guard, so he can look to work his hips, so he can look to sweep you, look to set up an arm bar, look to set up the leg locks, transition from triangle to arm bar to Ashigarami leg lock game. Back to taking the back, going to the neck. The guy is active with strikes off of his back, really good with elbows off his back if he does get taken down from Batori, and a very active guard, very solid and dangerous jujitsu to the point where I believe that Batori is the better wrestler, will have better top control, will get the better takedowns, will be better on the feet. But playing jujitsu against Roman Delidze is a recipe for disaster even if you're Marvin Vittori. So he's going to look for submission attempts. Submission average 0.56 for Marvin Vittori to 2.12 for Roman Delidze. He's going to be active off of his back. He's going to be looking for elbows, going to be looking for hammer fists, going to be looking to roll the leg locks, going to be looking to sweep you with the scissor sweep from the full guard, looking to sweep you from half guard, looking to roll to the leg lock game, play the Ashigarami, transition to the back, transition to the arm bar. If you can't get the arm bar, go to the triangle. Can't get the triangle, go to the arm bar, transition from the arm bar to the leg locks. He's very good at transitioning from the arms to the legs off of his back. And he's so active that Batori will be in trouble on the floor against Roman Delidze, so I feel like it's better for Vittori to keep it on the feet and use his wrestling defensively more than using his wrestling offensively. He will be able to take down Roman, but being in the guard of Delidze, being on top against Delidze is a big problem for getting swept, big problem for looking to get caught in a submission. Like the submission upside for Roman Delidze is so high. Even though I believe that's his only way to win is to either win via a submission by catching Vittori or catching him in a submission or grappling jujitsu heavy style position and then landing a TKO like he did against Jack Hermanson. Like the submission upside is so high for Roman Delidze. And like I've picked against this guy so many times. I pick I pick him to win as an underdog against Jack Hermanson, he's an underdog in every one of the fights that he's been winning, and he comes off and he gets a finish. An underdog against Dawkins gets a finish. Underdog against Phil Haas gets a finish. Underdog against Hermanson gets a finish. Big underdog here at plus 220 against Marvin Vittori. Plus 225, I'm sorry, to minus 265 for Vittori. Um, Vittori's the better fighter. Vittori's the better striker. He's better offensively and defensively on the feet. He's sharper. He's going to outstrike Delidze 100%. He's going to outwrestle Delidze. He's the better takedown artist, the better wrestler. But Delidze's ability to transition his jujitsu, his submission attempts, his submission upside, the danger that this man possesses from the top position on the ground, and the activity and danger he possesses off of the back, off of his back, I should say, is a big, big problem for everybody in, in this division, including Vittori, even though he's a solid and decorated grappler. Um, coming to this fight prediction, man, it's actually very difficult to make a prediction here. I, I should go with Vittori. Um, he's going to be the better fighter like we've already said. I've talked about it already. He should win this fight either by TKO or by decision. But are we going to pick against Delidze again and, you know, where he can definitely find a submission, where he can definitely find the TKO? It's rough. It's tough to pick this one. Um, I feel like the clear pick should be Vittori, but it's never clear against Roman Delidze. It's never clear in a Delidze fight. He's not that great on the feet. He's actually pretty awful. But his jiu-jitsu, his grappling, and the danger off of his back makes up for that and then some. Man. Bro, I, but, I mean, Vittori's so good defensively on the ground. He's He's got good takedown defense, a good offensive wrestler. 
screw it. I'm going with the underdog. I was going to pick Vittoria. I'm going with the Lidze. I'm going with the Lidze. It might, you know, bite me in the ass here. It might bite me in the ass, but I'm going to side with the underdog again here. I'm going to go with Roman, the Caucasian, Delidze to defeat Marvin, the Italian dream, Vittori, via a second-round submission. I think he's so good off of his back, man, that he's going to find that leg. He's going to find that arm. He's going to find that neck. He's going to find something in the grappling transitions against Vittori, and he's going to submit him. So my pick is the plus 225 underdog in the number, what is he ranked, number 11? The number nine ranked Roman, the Caucasian Delizze, to defeat the number four ranked Marvin Vittori via a second round submission. I, I, the betting perspective, the only play on this fight from a betting perspective is Delizze either inside the distance or Delizze on the money line. You don't take Marvin Vittori at like a three to one favorite. I mean, everybody's been fading Roman Delizze lately, and you could do it here. I was originally going to pick Vittori, but something's telling me. To take Delidze again. I, I went against my original judgment and picked him as an underdog against Jack Hermanson, where he had shut me down twice after picking against him prior to that. I'm gonna ride with Delidze here, man. I'm gonna ride with him again. Um, I think he finds a submission in his in his wonderful scrambling ability, locks Marvin Vittori up in a leg lock and gets a submission. So my pick is Roman the Caucasian Delidze to defeat the number four ranked Marvin the Italian Dream Vittori via a second-round heel hook submission. Playing the fight from an overall betting perspective, if you're not on the side of Delidze, play Vittoria as a favorite, that's fine, but I would stay away from it. Um, I would say Roman Delidze by submission or Roman Delidze on the money line at plus 225. I wouldn't parlay it, even if you're on the side of Delidze, because I could easily see Vittori winning this fight and outclassing him. But the submission and the finishing upside from Roman, I think you have to play it at some point. So I would say don't parlay it, but take Roman Delidze um, at plus 225 or Roman Delidze inside the distance, which is probably going to be plus 350, plus 400. But the overall pick is Roman, the Caucasian Delidze, to defeat Marvin Vittori via second-round heel hook submission. All right, and now we get to the co-main event of the evening in the UFC's lightweight division between the former interim lightweight champion and the number three ranked Justin, the highlight Gaethje coming into this fight with a record of 24 victories and four defeats going up against a man who is six and one in his UFC career in the number six ranked former striking coach at Tiger Muay Thai in Thailand. One of the best strikers in the UFC in Rafael Ataman Fiziev or Fiziev, however you want to say his last name, coming into the fight with a record of 12 victories with one defeat. This is going to be a firefight. Like, this is probably your fight of the night. This is going to be action from bell to bell. The question is, does the fight go the distance, or does somebody get put to sleep? Because looking at a guy in Justin Gaethje, who is going to come forward, who's going to throw heavy leg kicks, one of the best leg kickers in the division, one of the best leg kickers in all of mixed martial arts, who's going to come forward with heavy power shots, big bombs, and just look to lay you out for the entirety of the 15-minute bout. Going up against a guy in Rafael Fazeev, who is slick, quick, and technical on the feet. Good counter pullback technique, good upper trunk movement with slips, pulls, counters. He's very good at getting off on the angle, stepping off, boom. Landing switch kicks to the body. Really good counter kick game from the lead leg. And normally his counter kicks come from his lead leg, which is the left leg. 
I mean, we saw him butcher Mark Jacasey with kicks to the body and high kicks and pull away from the kicks of Mark Jacasey, who's not slow at all with Matrix-like head movement. I mean, the guy is probably the most technical striker in MMA. You know, Fazeev's coming off that fifth-round TKO over Rafael Dos Anjos where he was able to stop the takedowns and the wrestling, um, but wasn't really able to get much of anything going on the feet. Like, there wasn't a lot of striking. It was a lot of clinch games, takedown attempts, pushing up against the cage from Rafael Dos Anjos. Um, you know, and, and there's really nobody in this division that's going to be able to hang with Fazeev from a technical aspect. I thought Brad Riddell was going to be able to do that. I thought he was going to be able to win that fight. But not only was he losing the rounds, he had some good counters at certain points against Fazeev. But even when he tried to rush in and counter and crash the pocket, Fazeev's good with short counters too. Like I know he's good from range and people think like if you pressure Fazeev, you can beat him. And, you know, it's possible, but he's good with counters as well from inside close range, in clinch range, just outside of clinch range with short hooks, very good left hook. Uh, right hook, left hook, right uppercut, left hook, straight right, left hook, straight left, right hook. He's very good at with over-the-top overhands inside close range, uppercuts, and hooks. I would say Gaethje's the better uppercutter. He probably has better uppercuts. He's good at slipping the jab, coming up the middle with the six, slip the jab, boom, up the middle with the six or the rear uppercut. Saw him use that a lot against Michael Chandler. He hurt Tony Ferguson with some uppercuts. Uh, he was able to hurt uh, Donald Cerrone in the clinch with the overhands and the uppercuts up the middle and eventually drop him. This is a tough fight because it's going to be the more technical striker, the more technical, the faster, the cleaner, it's Fazeev. And it's not even close. But Gaethje can win this fight. He, he has the ability to shut Fazeev's lights out. I would say that Gaethje hits harder, but with the technique and speed that Fazeev has, his punches are going to have a bigger effect on Gaethje than Gaethje's will on Fazeev. The cleaner technique with the speed, with the power that he already has, he's going to be able to catch Gaethje inside those wild exchanges. And Gaethje's a wild man. He loves wild exchanges. He loves, you know, getting in your face, making it a dirty fight, trying to break you. Gaethje's objective from start to finish is to break the opponent, break his mental will, break his physical body, and break his spirit from the start to the finish. Can he do that against a guy who's as clean and technical as a Fazeev on the feet, who, like I said, is one of the most technical strikers in the UFC? I beg to differ. I don't necessarily think he can, but there are avenues for him to win. I've seen Fazeev get hit with some left hooks in his career. Like I feel like the left hand or the lead left hook is something that will catch him over and over again. And Gaethje's got one of the best left hooks in the game. He's got a good jab. He pairs it with the left hook. He's got a good uppercut. He always follows the uppercut with the left hook unless he's able to slip and catch you with that uppercut. But even if he catches you like Chandler and he drops you, he's going to follow up with the uppercut, the six to the three, the 63. Route 63, I like to call it. The uppercut up the middle from the rear hand and the left hook on the exit. You know, he threw it against Chandler, but Chandler fell down before it could land. But if that would have landed after that uppercut, he would have knocked Chandler out cold. And, you know, Gaethje's had chin issues. He got knocked out or dropped by Charles Oliveira after dropping him twice. He got caught in like a square stance, um, measured off the lead side, boom, countered with the right hand. That's something that Fazeev is going to be able to do. The one thing I like is the back side, the rear side angle counters from Fazeev, and I'll explain what I mean. I've talked about the rear side angle before, and it's going to be very, very 
I'm not going to say very, very, but it's going to be imperative for Fazeev to use these counters against Gaethje. And if he does, and especially if he goes to the body, he's going to butcher Justin Gaethje. So the rear side angle, right? So when you're standing in orthodox, we'll use orthodox for an example, right? So your lead foot is left foot. Your back foot is your right foot, right? So the rear, the lead side angle would be to angle shift, step off to the lead side and pivot off. You step off to the lead side, your left foot, and you angle off a little 45 degree angle. That is your lead side angle. Now your rear side angle is where you're going to step. You're going to step to the back side, the back side foot. You're going to angle off that way. That is going to allow you to get over the jab of the orthodox opponent that you're fighting, which we saw Charles Oliveira do. Charles Oliveira's success in the striking realm of that fight, even after he got knocked down, was using the rear side angle to set up the targets for his shots. He would back up. He would angle off to his rear side, come over the top of the jab of Justin Gaethje with an overhand right or a straight right hand. When he caught Gaethje with the right hand, he briefly angled off. Gaethje was in a square stance where he wasn't in one particular stance where the right or the left hand was the power hand, but he was able to angle off and then bang, come over the top with the right hand. Gaethje was square, which means, yes, equal power, but a open target right in front of Oliveira. Bang, caught him on the chin, dropped him, basically knocked him out with that punch. Gaethje was out of it after that, and then he got submitted. But even the rear side angle to the overhand right over the jab, the rear side angle to the right hand, to the left hook, to the body, to the left hook up top for Fazeev is going to be a big weapon. Because when Gaethje throws that left hook, it is clean. It is crisp. He has one of the best left hooks in the game, showcased in the fight against Chandler, showcased in the fight against Tony Ferguson, where he became the interim champion. However, when he throws, he throws with so much power, so much windup. It's a clean shot, technically, but he throws power into everything that he can, that he throws. And on one hand, that could catch Fazeev and that could knock him out. You know, if, if Fazeev gets caught on the chin by Gaethje, We've seen him get knocked out earlier in his career by Magomed Mustafayev with a spinning back kick right to the face. I mean, I know that the kick is harder than a punch, but if Gaethje starts landing big bombs on the face of Fazeev, or if he counters Fazeev stepping in, he can knock out Gaethje, or he can knock out Fazeev. If Fazeev lands on the chin of Gaethje, he can land and knock him out as well. Either person can knock out the other in this fight. It's a firefight. It's kill or be killed. But that rear side angle, will go back to what we were discussing. That is going to open up the lead switch kick to the body as Gaethje throws that left hook. So if Gaethje goes one, two, bang, throws that left hook, Fazeev's going to step off to the rear side, which means the left hook is going to go past his face, which means that if Gaethje throws it, which is with as much power as he normally does, he's going up against one of the best counter strikers. But not only that, one of the best counter kickers in MMA. And, and the best kick from Fazeev is the right low kick and the lead left switch kick to the body. His switch kick is fast, it's clean, it's crisp, it's technical. When Gaethje throws that left hook, bang! If he steps off on that rear side angle and lands that switch kick to the body, when Gaethje's going to be off to the side at a parallel angle to Fazeev's stance, that left body kick is going to smack the body of Gaethje. And I know what you're going to say. Well, uh, we've never seen Gaethje have weakness there. Yes, we have. Go back and watch uh, the Eddie Alvarez fight. The only reason Eddie Alvarez was able to win that fight after his legs were destroyed was because he was able to touch-touch and rip-rip to the body. The only reason Poirier had success, yes, it was with the boxing, but it was with his ability to change levels with multi-level boxing combinations 
And it started all with the body, the hooks, the hooks, the uppercuts, the kicks to the bodies, the knees as Gaethje tries to close the distance. Again, go back to the Oliveira fight. When he was getting to that rear side angle, the right hand, but the rear side angle with the tie clinch where you're going to frame off with one hand and then you're going to go over the top with the other hand and then you can get off to the side stance and land a rear knee to the body or a rear knee to the thigh or a lead switch knee to the body. Those are going to be big weapons against a guy who is a master of those techniques. The switch kick to the body, the knees to the body, the rear kick to the body. But the switch kick to the body is going to be the bread and butter for Fazid from the lead side. His lead left hook as well, the left hook to the body, with the right hand to the left hook off the break like he landed against Hanato Moicano. Justin Gaethje is very good with lowering his level like a wrestler, but stepping off to the linear movement, left or right, and rolling underneath. A lot of the success from Gaethje comes off not just the slips, but his ability to roll underneath and go under the shots of his opponent and come back on counters. He'll roll underneath, boom, come up the middle with the uppercut, like if you throw the jab, slip off, boom, right uppercut up the middle. Roll underneath the jab, right hook, straight left down the middle. Gaethje is good at using those angles and the lateral movement and the head movement to step off on the lateral movement, the lateral angles, and use that to set up the angle to the outside foot of Fazeev, which would be the left foot if they're both orthodox, the left foot for both guys, but rolling underneath and using that momentum to switch to southpaw, which would give Gaethje the outside foot on the lead foot of Fazeev and landing the right hook to the left hook in the southpaw stance. The stance switch, straight right hand underneath and the left hook off the roll, switching to southpaw, getting the outside foot on Ferguson was one of the reasons he was able to butcher Tony Ferguson in that fight. And even in that fight, he got caught with uppercuts himself against Tony Ferguson. That's what he dropped him with. But I think for Gaethje, he's going to have to feint the wrestling, come up the middle with the uppercuts, feint the wrestling, roll underneath to counter Fazeev, right hook, left over the top, the left overhand, the left hook from the southpaw stance. Those are going to be the weapons. The stance switch combinations and the right low kicks to the lead left leg of Fazeev are going to be the best weapons for Gaethje paired with the left hook. For Fazeev, it's going to be countering Gaethje, stepping in, getting into close range, right outside a clinch range in that boxing range, and landing short counters, or as Gaethje throws a left hook, stepping to the rear side angle to set up the angle to land the lead switch kick to the body, which can set up the right hand and the left hook behind it. That's the main breakdown on this fight. If Gaethje can use his low calf kicks, the right low kicks early and often, he's going to tear up the leg of Fazeev. But if Fazeev can catch Gaethje throwing that low kick with a right straight, a left hook, right uppercut, a left hook, a jab left hook, right body kick, angle off, have him miss the low kick, he'll spin through because he throws so much power that's going to put him at the same parallel angle that missing the left hook would if Fazeev stepped to that rear side angle, which is going to set up an angle for the left hook, which is going to set up a hook, an angle for a potential left overhand, but it, what is most importantly going to set up an angle for either a left switch head kick or a left kick to the body. Going off the fight, I don't even need to break down stats because I feel like what I just broke down is the most important aspects of this fight because it's going to be mainly fought in the striking distance, whether it's at kickboxing range or boxing range. But breaking it down and making a prediction, I'm going to go with Rafael Fazeev. 
I think he's way more technical than Gaethje. I think even if he misses shots, he doesn't throw himself off balance as much as Gaethje does. And we've seen that in the past from Gaethje where he'll throw himself off balance. And that is also what set up the rear side angle counters and punches and knees from Oliveira, which led to a first round finish. I think the switch kick to the body is big for Fazeev. I think Fazeev will get hit. And if Gaethje lands that big left hook, if he lands... That big overhand, if he counters Fazeev, he can knock him out. So this is a fight where either person can win, but I expect the technical and stylistic advantages paired with the better defensive responsibility and ability to angle off and set up the counters with the upper trunk movement of Fazeev to be able to lead him to a finish here over Justin Gaethje. I think he's going to get that rear side angle, butcher the body. I think he's going to hurt him with a left kick to the body barrage him and I think he's actually going to catch him with a head kick and knock him out so my pick is going to be the number six Rafael Ataman Fazeev to defeat the number three ranked Justin the highlight Gaethje via a second round head kick knockout he's going to work the body hurt him to the body which we've already seen from Gaethje before and then he's going to come up top to the head and knock out Gaethje with a head kick from a betting perspective um I think the best bet on the fight is fight doesn't go to decision but I'm sure it'll be juiced to the gills. I like Fazeev inside the distance. I like fight doesn't go to decision. Like I said, so fight doesn't go to decision. Rafael Fazeev on the money line. I don't love it. Like minus 230, unless you're going to parlay it. If you're going to parlay it, go ahead. But with Gaethje's finishing ability and the power that he has, I think it's almost better to stay away from this fight from a betting perspective at all. If you're on the Gaethje side, I would take money line at plus 195 or a finish for Gaethje. But again, I thought that there was no chance that Michael Chandler and Justin Gaethje were going to go to decision, and they did, and they beat the absolute crap out of each other. So maybe it's better 100% to stay away from this fight from a betting perspective on either side, whether you're on Gaethje or Fazeev, even if it's fight doesn't go the distance, even if it's under overs on rounds, I think it's better to stay away. My pick would be Fazeev on the money line or Rafael Fazeev inside the distance via KO, TKO, or DQ, which will probably be like a minus 110 maybe minus 120. So you're probably not even going to get plus money on it. So I think if I'm being in particular and, and breaking it down, like honestly, I think you just sit back with your popcorn and watch the fight and enjoy the violence that's about to ensue. But in the co-main event, I'm picking the number six ranked Rafael Ataman Fiziev to defeat the number three ranked Justin Gaethje via second round head kick knockout. And now we get to the main event of the evening in the trilogy bout in the hometown of the champion in London, England. You have the champion at 170 pounds in Leon Rocky Edwards coming into this bout with a record of 20 victories and three defeats coming off of that fifth round head kick KO cross same side head kick where he defeated the challenger in this fight now. In Kamaru, the Nigerian Nightmare Usman to become the new welterweight champion. And Kamaru Usman coming in trying to regain his welterweight title. Coming in with a record of 20 victories with only two defeats. The only loss in the UFC coming at the hands of the now champion in Leon Rocky Edwards after a true Rocky moment. Man, this is a great matchup. This is a phenomenal fight. And I know a lot of people are going to go into this and say, well, it's not going to play out much different from the first or the second fight where there's going to be some moments for Leon. Leon's probably going to put Kamaru in some danger at some points. But for the most part, it's going to be Edwards getting pressured up against the cage, getting taken down with the superior wrestling of Kamaru Usman, going to keep taking him down, pushing him against the fence, 
using the over-under positions, landing some shots in the clinch, and continuing to use his overwhelming wrestling and power. And when he's inside that over-under clinch against the fence, using shots to the body, using shots up top to the head, and then changing levels to go back down and continue the rinse and repeat for 25 minutes. Usman was on his way to doing that in the rematch at UFC 278. He was constantly pressuring Leon up against the cage. He was working his way back. He was pushing him back with some punches, getting Leon to guard up high, and then shooting the takedowns up against the fence, transitioning to the over-under position in the clinch, landing knees to the thigh, going back down to the body. When he broke off on the clinch, it was hooks and uppercuts to the body and then back up to the head, getting Leon to high guard and then transitioning back down to the legs to get the takedowns. If he couldn't get the takedowns, he would transition from the double legs or single legs back up to the body lock and work from either the double under clinch position, double underhook clinch position, or the over under position and continue to work knees to the body and knees up top, you know, and then transitioning back to the takedowns and getting Leon down to the floor and just controlling him on the mat. In the first, in the second fight, though, in the first round, Leon was actually the only man to take down Kamaru and the first man to take down Kamaru in his MMA career by using an outside trip inside the clinch to get to the top position, land up in the mount, take the back of Usman, put the body triangle in, and almost lock in a rear naked choke at the end of the first round. That is something that Usman is going to have to be careful of. Because even though Kamaru is going to be the better wrestler, he's going to be the more dominant grappler. He's going to be able to dictate the pace of the fight and dictate where the fight takes place so long as he can continue to pressure Leon up against the cage and work in those positions, getting Leon to step behind that second black line in the octagon over to the cage. And Leon's going to have to use fakes and feints, the rear hip feint to draw out the reaction and the defense of Kamaru, and then use that those fakes and feints, the lead hand frame, the rear hip feint, the lead jab feint to play with the rear hand of the orthodox fighter in Usman to step to the outside of the lead foot, set up the left inside low kick, set up the left body kick, and then set up the left high kick like he did when he landed the knockout blow in the fifth round against Kamaru. It's going to be jab, check right hook, left body kick, jab, check right hook, lead teep kick, or rear teep kick, jab, left right hook, left low kick to the inside of the lead left leg of Kamaru, and I honestly think low kicks are a big weapon for Leon in this trilogy bout because of the knee issues that we've heard from Kamaru Usman. And another thing you have to take into consideration, well, I, I will save that, we'll save that, but we'll talk about the knee issues. Kamaru has documented it on the Joe Rogan podcast, on other podcasts as well, that his knees are so shot that he can't even walk on concrete. He can't even walk on concrete, he has to walk on the grass. I don't know how he can train at the intensity that he trains, but... He must not go heavy in the grappling when he trains because of the knee issues. He's probably working a lot of drilling in the clinch, cage wrestling, you know, getting back up to your feet or holding the opponent down when they try to get back up to the feet, leg lacing, Dagestani triangle leg mount, tra uh, transitioning to the Dagestani handcuff to break the posture and the base down of the opponent, and rinse and repeat because Usman is a fantastic wrestler, and he can take down just about any welterweight in the division, in, except for Colby Covington, even though I think he got a couple takedowns throughout their two fights as well. I would venture to say that this is going to be the toughest fight of Kamaru Usman's career. And I know people are going to tell me, well, why would it be the toughest fight of his career? He was dominating the fight until he got knocked out. He dominated the first fight, aside from when he almost got caught in that submission, and etc., etc. And I completely understand where you're coming from, and I know the logic and ideology behind the things that you're trying to say. 
But at the end of the day, let's look at a few intangibles. Number one, we're in the hometown of the champion now in Leon Edwards. Leon Edwards defending his title for the first time against a man who he knocked out cold after getting dominated for almost the entirety of the fight. You're not you're facing a man now in his hometown. He's going to have the home field advantage. And you also have Usman coming in, not only off of the first loss of his professional MMA career, or at least his first loss inside the UFC, but you also have a Kamaru Usman who's coming in after a knockout, a one-shot head kick, clean KO. Not a TKO, not a doctor stoppage, not a ref jumping in after he was covering up. A one-hitter-quitter, clean left head kick to the dome, completely knocking him out. And then going into this fight, he had the hand surgery, and he almost, I believe if I'm correct, this fight wasn't going to take place or was maybe going to get pushed back. We didn't know if Usman was going to make this fight because of the hand surgery, the recovery from the hand surgery, the broken hands. He might have broken both his hands in the last fight against Leon. I'm not really going to take the hand injuries into consideration, but what I am going to take into consideration is the fact that Usman's coming back to try to regain his belt after being knocked out cold just about, what, six months ago? Let's see. Leon Edwards. Give me a second. He knocked out Kamaru Usman. I believe it was in September. It's either August or September. Let's see. Will you load for me? Come on, come on. Sorry about the um, pauses because the website doesn't want to load, but we'll get there. Okay, let's go back because we're still not firing on all cylinders here. Okay, here we go. He knocked out Kamaru Usman back in August, August 20th. So August 20th to March 16th or March 18th. So basically August to March, right? So that's about seven months. He's been, he got knocked out just about seven months ago. Now take into consideration the time to heal, no training, no hard training. So give him like two, two and a half months off. So now you got seven months, you're down to five months. Going into a training camp, you're training for about two and a half months hard, two and a half months, about 12 weeks or two and a half, three months hard, right? Like 12, 16 weeks, whatever it is. So now you got you got Kamaru coming in trying to regain his belt. You got Kamaru coming in trying to regain his belt on the home turf of the now champion in Leon Edwards. You have Kamaru Usman coming in trying to regain his belt against a Leon Edwards who knocked him out cold and against a Leon Edwards who handed him his first knockout loss. We don't know how Kamaru is going to come back after being knocked out like that. We don't know the durability of Kamaru Usman coming in after that knockout loss. We have a lot of individuals who come back after a knockout and just aren't the same. There's some people who come back after getting knocked out like that and they're able to not have really very many chin issues and they can have a successful career. It could be either one for Kamaru. I don't necessarily think he's going to have terrible durability issues, but the knee injuries, the broken down body, now coming in off a chin that got tested and didn't pass the test, He's been rocked in other fights before, but he's never been rocked like, you know, how he got knocked out in this fight against Edwards. I think Edwards is definitely going to be at a disadvantage with the wrestling like we talked about. Like, Edwards is going to get taken down. He's going to get pushed up against the cage. It's going to be very similar to the last two fights between Kamaru and Leon. 
there's not going to be a ton of differences in how the fights play out. I just think Leon is going to be more prepared for the game plan of Usman. And you could say, well, how wasn't he more well-prepared for the game plan of Usman if he did it in the first fight and then he fought him about six, seven years later and he still wasn't prepared and got taken down, out-wrestled, out-grappled. Leon wasn't pulling the trigger. You know, he wasn't pulling the trigger. He was gun-shy. He wasn't able to open up. I think now that he knows he has the ability to knock Kamaru out, it can be a double-edged sword. Because Leon can come in and start opening up, put his combinations on Kamaru, start landing the left inside low kicks, the left kicks to the body, the left head kicks, the cross into the head kicks. And if he starts opening up on Kamaru early and often with making sure to not throw too many kicks so that Kamaru doesn't time it and work for the takedowns like he did against Jorge Masvidal in their first fight on Fight Island at UFC 251, then... um. I think Leon can be very successful, and I think he can knock Kamaru out again. If Leon is going to be gun-shy again and continue to look for that one shot, he'll be beaten. If he looks for one shot again, Kamaru will beat him by decision or potentially knock him out. So Leon cannot be overconfident just because he knows he has the ability to knock out Kamaru. But Leon's never been a guy who's going to fight with overconfidence. He's going to fight to the best of his ability and try to maximize his opportunities and minimize his deficiencies. That's how Leon fights. He's very smart. He's very tactical. He's very technical. He's never been the most popular because he doesn't have a lot of finishes. He wins a lot by decision. He's he's very technical in the way he approaches the game. The outside foot battle, the left kicks to the body, the left head kicks, the elbows off the break in the clinch, like you know he landed against Gunnar Nelson and did a very solid job. You know, landing the takedowns, the inside and outside trips, the backside trips against Nate Diaz. You know, those are going to work well for him. And they'll work well in this fight again because we saw them work for him against Kamaru in the second fight where he didn't expect the takedown and he was able to get the outsider inside trips. Now Kamaru knows that he can get taken down if he overcommits or throws a lazy knee or is off balance. He knows that now. So it's going to be a lot harder for Leon to take down Kamaru. But I still think Leon can work off the break in the clinch. I talked about it going into the last fight. I think Leon can land elbows off the break in the clinch like he did against Gunnar Nelson. And we saw him land a few elbows against Kamaru in the last fight. None of them did serious damage. But he landed some good elbows up against the cage and breaking off in the clinch against Kamaru. I think he should go back to that. I think he should heavily attack with the lead hand feints and then the left inside low kick. Going up against an orthodox fighter, you're going to attack the inside low kick when you're a southpaw. And the left kick to the body is going to be attacking the liver against the orthodox fighter. So I think instead of using the face and feints to set up the high kick this time, I think he's going to use the inside low kicks against the orthodox fighter and Kamaru. I think he's going to attack the body against Kamaru with the left body kick. And then using that starting early and then pairing that with the rear hip feint that he used multiple times in the last fight against Kamaru, even using it and then feinting and throwing the left head kick, but Kamaru was able to block it. The first time Leon did that feint, you saw Kamaru kind of slip with his head on the outside of his hand and block it. So early on in the fight, Leon was getting tells of how Kamaru was reacting to that feint. So if Kamaru can change that much and really just change the way he reacts and not react as much and be more reactionary with the takedowns off the kick attempts of Leon, which will make him gun shy, and then it'll make the feints that Leon throws not really a threat because he knows he's not going to kick so much because of the threat of the takedowns from Usman, then I think Usman can have a very successful fight. 
But I think with Leon, he's going to have to attack the inside low kicks against the orthodox fighter and attack the knees because we know the knee issues that Kamaru has dealt with and publicly made known. Attack the low kicks. Attack the inside, the outside low kicks. Slow down Kamaru because if you slow down, slow him down, if you attack those legs, it's going to make the wrestling shots a little bit harder for Kamaru. But we've seen how dominant Kamaru has been in the wrestling department, in the clinch department, in the cage wrestling department, in the ability to take down Leon and ground him and not allow him to get back up to his feet. We've seen that from Kamaru in the second fight and in the first fight. But going off the fact that Leon is going against a Kamaru Usman who is coming off the first knockout loss of his career, a Kamaru Usman who has severely deteriorated knees, a Kamaru Usman who's coming back after seven months of being knocked out cold and knocked out for the first time, like we just said, I think this is Leon's fight, man. I think Leon Edwards can win this fight. I think if he uses the inside low kicks and the kicks to the body, if he uses the strikes off the break in the clinch, and then if he's able to use knees inside the clinch to Mac to disguise the break elbows off the break or the elbows off the break in the clinch, he can have a lot of success against Kamaru. But he just can't overcommit with the low kicks and the body kicks because Kamaru can time them and use that to set up his takedowns. He also has to respect the power in the hands of Kamaru because I know people are going to say Leon was hurt in that last fight. You know, he was getting rocked. He was getting punched. He was getting hit hard. Even the shots when Kamaru was really winding up and throwing big shots and pushing Leon against the cage, Leon was blocking a lot of those with the high guard. Now, obviously, you're still taking damage. You're still taking the impact. When you use a high guard, you're still taking that impact. But, you know... Leon was blocking and was doing a lot better defensively than I think people thought. It's just they were overshadowed. It was overshadowed by the pressure and the big power and the wind-up shots that Kamaru was throwing. If Kamaru can stick behind his jab, if he can use the jab to feint, if he can switch southpaw and pop the jab from southpaw like he did when he dropped Gilbert Burns, then I think he can have more success on the feet and potentially knock out Leon if Leon gets overconfident, but I've never seen Leon as being a guy who's going to be overconfident or who's going to fight out of his game. He did it against Nate Diaz though. And look what happened. The check, right hook to the straight left hand, the same exact shot that Kamaru caught Leon or caught Gilbert, or ugh, the same exact shot that Kamaru caught Jorge Masvidal with the check hook to block the power hand and pull down the guard to then come through with the straight left hand or the right hand. I think it was the left hand though. That's the same shot that Nate Diaz landed on Leon Edwards in their fight. And the shot that hurt him, rocked him, put him on wobbly legs, and had him basically out on his feet in the fifth round. So he has to respect the striking because Kamaru can crack the chin of Leon Edwards and knock him out. If Nate Diaz can crack your chin like that with that hook into the straight, then if Kamaru lands that, I think he could put Leon out. So he has to be respectful of the power and the striking ability of Usman, even though Leon is the more technical and well-rounded striker on the feet. This is a tough fight to call, but I'm going to go with Leon Edwards. I'm going to go with Leon Edwards to remain the welterweight champion. Based off the things we've already discussed, the knee issues of Kamaru. Kamaru coming in off his first KO loss just six, seven months ago. You know, not really having a lot of time to heal. He should have taken a year off after that knockout. Coming in off the hand surgeries, coming off, coming in off the deteriorated knees, you know, coming in on the home turf of the challenger. Like, everything is against Kamaru. And Kamaru's a guy who can rise to the occasion. 
I just don't think he rises to the occasion here. And anybody who can be supremely confident in a Kamaru Usman, I can understand from how the last fight played out before the knockout. So yes, if he's able to use that wrestling, if he's able to constantly take Leon down, if he's able to push him against the cage, I get it. I get it, and I, I understand where you're coming from because we've seen the fight play out, and the second fight was very similar to the first fight. But in this fight, I think it's going to be more in the realm of Leon Edwards. It might not be as exciting of a fight, but the last fight wasn't as exciting either until Leon landed that head kick. But I think it's going to be more in control by the champion in Edwards than Kamaru. I think Kamaru is going to be biting on a lot of the feints of Leon. And I think Leon's going to use more elbows and knees inside the clinch. More elbows because if you throw a knee at a bad angle, then Kamaru can change levels and take you down. So I think we'll see more elbows over the top, elbows off the break. I think the elbows in the clinch will hurt Kamaru at a certain point. And um, I don't necessarily think I see a finish from Leon Edwards, but I see Edwards winning a decision if he doesn't get Kamaru out of there. So I'm going to go with and still. Leon Rocky Edwards to retain the welterweight championship in his hometown of London, England via a 48-47 unanimous decision. I think it'll be close, but I think Leon will more clear, clear cut, will be in more clear cut control of this fight than the last one, even though he won, because the last one was in the control of Usman until it wasn't. I think Leon will win three out of the five rounds. I think he'll be in better control. I think he will play it smart. I think he'll play it at range and be able to pick apart Kamaru. I think his takedown defense and clinch defense will be better than the last fight, but I also think he's going to be looking to do more damage in terms of how he gets the defense off inside the clinch, in the over-unders, in the tie clinch, in the double-unders. He's going to be looking to break off with damage more than he's going to be worried about constant defense. And if he's able to use that damage and break and those elbows off the break more in this fight, which we've seen him have success with in his career before, then I think that Leon will do more damage to Kamaro, potentially even knocking him out with a shot in the clinch, an elbow off the break. But I think that this is Leon's fight, and I think Leon wins this. I'm actually pretty confident in it as well. I just do worry about the wrestling and the takedowns of Usman if Leon hasn't cleaned that up at least a little bit, and if he's still gun-shy. If Leon comes in as gun-shy as the last time, um, he'll lose, and Kamara will win the decision. But I think he's going to come in more effective, more confident, but not overconfident because Leon's just not that type of guy. I know he was against Nate Diaz, and it cost him, so I don't think we'll see him do that again because he was still able to win the fight, even though he got rocked. But if he comes in respectful of Usman's game, respectful of Usman's striking, and is able to use damage inside the clinch to negate a lot of the takedowns, clinch attempts, clinch control, and inside and outside trips from Usman inside the clinch and the cage positioning and cage wrestling of Usman, then I think Leon will do very well. And I'm going to pick Leon Edwards to win via 48-47 unanimous decision. I just think he comes in more well-rounded. I think this is Usman's time to like hang it up. I think this will probably be Usman's last fight. If he gets knocked out, then I think Usman will retire after this fight. But I'm going to go with the decision. I'm going to say that Kamaru is going to be a little bit durable. But he also just got knocked out in the last fight. So he's going to be a little bit more gun-shy. And if that head kick lands again, I mean, he will get knocked out. But at the same time, if the straight left or straight right hand lands for Usman and it lands clean, he can knock out Edwards as well. So... I, if, if Leon wasn't the technical and cerebral fighter that he is, I would think he would come in here overconfident and Usman would probably get him out of here. 
but I know the type of fighter that Leon is. I know the type of fighter he's been throughout his entire career. But if he knows he has to stick to a certain game plan in order to win a fight, he will do it just like Usman in the same. So I'm going to pick Leon to win three rounds out of the five. It'll be a lot more clear cut on the side of Leon this time. And uh, the champion is going to retain his title. So Leon Rocky Edwards to defeat Kamaru Usman, retaining his welterweight title via 48-47 unanimous decision. Um. When it comes to the betting for this fight, I would say I wouldn't parlay it, but I like Leon on the money line at plus 195, plus 200. He was all the way up at like plus 230 like a month ago, a few weeks ago. So money has been coming in on the champion. Um, I like Leon as the plus 195 dog. I could see Leon by knockout, um, but I would say just play the money line to be safe. I like Leon at plus 195. I don't like him in a parlay though. So maybe, you know, just play him single and then you can parlay the other guys we talked about like Lerone Murphy, like Christian Leroy Duncan, you know, like the under two and a half for uh, Juliana Miller and Veronica Macedo. I like the under two and a half. It's like minus 120, somewhere around there. Um, I like the under two and a half. I like Lerone Murphy on the money line and I like Christian Leroy Duncan on the money line or by knockout. Uh, Lerone Murphy, I like by knockout, but he hasn't been in the UFC in a little bit. He's been gone for a while. So I think money line is the safer bet. Um, I like Fazeev over Gaethje, but I don't love the bet because, like I said, I already think that, or I think that Gaethje could knock out Fazeev with the power that he possesses, and it will be close at certain points. But I do think Fazeev will pull away and eventually finish Gaethje, so I'm not 100% confident in that bet. But yeah, that's going to be it for my UFC 286 preview predictions and breakdown. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed it. You can get this podcast anywhere you get your audio podcasts. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, and many more. This podcast will be uploaded and broken down into individual fight segments on my YouTube channel, which is the same name as the podcast at Touch em Up Podcast. Uh, you can obviously go subscribe, like all the videos. I'm, I'm almost at 3,000 subscribers on the YouTube. So if you're listening to this and you haven't subscribed to the YouTube, make your way over to that platform and subscribe to the channel for me. I'm your host, Double M. I'm out. Enjoy the fights this weekend. Let's go, Rocky, baby.